This sermon was preached by Juan Kwok, head pastor and church planner of Maranatha Grace in Inglewood, New Jersey. Maranatha Grace was planted in 2010 and is seeking to reach New Jersey and uptown Manhattan with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.maranathagrace.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Today we're starting our series in the book of Jonah, and uh, today's message is entitled Jonah, Judgment, and Jesus. And uh, thank you, Suji, for the wonderful reading of God's word. Um, Why are we doing Jonah? Well, I thought in light of our recent VBS, our high seas expedition, we wanted to continue with the marine aquatic theme. Um, so I thought Jonah should precede the Gospel of John, right, in, 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 in our, as our next sermon series. I'm just kidding, okay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Jonah's a great book. Jonah is a great book. It's an Old Testament book. It's a book that's nestled in between Obadiah and Micah, I believe, right? Um, and, and, and the reason why I wanted to do an Old Testament book is because, not because... But I want to inform you that we're living in a time when biblical, Ill, biblical literacy can no longer be assumed. We can no longer assume that as we have conversations with people that we meet out on, on the streets, that they're going to know the Ten Commandments, that they're going to even know who you know, some of the disciples, the apostles of Jesus Christ were. Statistics and studies, and I won't get too far into this, I promise you I won't, But statistics and studies reveal to us that, believe it or not, this came as a surprise to me, nearly every American owns a Bible. Now, I wasn't sure, and I couldn't find um, uh, this explained further. I, I wasn't sure if it was every household or every person. But nonetheless, every American, let's say household, owns a Bible in this country. And in fact, there's more than one per household. Isn't that kind of shocking? I mean, you know that every hotel has a Gideon's Bible in the drawer, but every household has more than one Bible. That's a pleasant surprise. Now, the discouragement comes in this survey. There was a survey taken back in 2002. It's called the, not very clever, but Exploring Religious America Survey of 2002. And this survey reported, and, 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 and the results gave us findings that reveal that despite the fact that Americans have so many Bibles, few ever really take the time to read, much less study, the Word of God. Now, another encouraging note is that 84% of those surveyed in this 2002 survey reported they considered the Bible to be very or somewhat important in helping them make decisions in life. That's encouraging. But another discouraging note, half half surveyed could only name could even name one out of the four gospels matthew mark luke john only a third could identify the individual who delivered the sermon on the mount and um, the majority weren't even able to tell us that genesis is the first book of the 66 books Um, many couldn't identify even two or three of jesus's disciples 60% 60% couldn't name five out of the ten commandments. Um, 2004 Gallup poll talked, uh, 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 you know, 
a study of over 1,000 teens. Um, 60% of these teens were self-identified evangelical Christians. They weren't able to identify um, Cain as the one who said, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, They couldn't identify uh, who said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, They didn't know where the road, they didn't know what happened on the road to Damascus. Um, So I think it's safe to assume that this nation is becoming all the more biblically illiterate. Now, I don't want those of us who are young Christians to be discouraged by this. I'm not laying out those facts there to, to, for, for anyone to feel condemned or to anyone to feel like they're second class in their knowledge of the Bible. No, there is always room to grow. There is always um, time for us to, to get into God's word. And, and, and the reason why we go from you know, book to, to book, from chapter to verse Uh, expository preaching is for this reason. It's not about, you know, you memorizing John 3.16 and and Matthew uh, 7 and, 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 and Romans 8. It is, but it's not. It's great to have scripture in your, in, in your heart. As Psalm 119 says, I've, I've, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, but it's more than that. It's, it's understanding the storyline of the Bible. It's understanding the meta-narrative that we have here as God's word. It's understanding how God created everything out of nothing and how mankind fell and how God, in his righteous, holy anger and wrath, decided to wipe out, minus the family of Noah, and to recreate And then it talks about how he chooses a man and his family and a people and how through these people he, 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 he reaches out to the, to the other nations, right? And, we, and, and, and then it talks about how there's a period of silence, 450 years or so, and then boom, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is born. And we see of how he establishes his rule, his reign. How he, uh, through the apostles, through Paul especially, starts planting churches throughout, you know, the, the there you go, <laughs> throughout the, the civilized world. Thank you. And we see even prophetic, prophetic words of how he's going to redeem and restore a new heaven and a new earth here in this, in what we see here. It's, it's an amazing narrative, and we need to grow in our knowledge of this narrative. That's what really getting into the Word of God is all about, so that we can apply what we know, so that we can live out the truths of God's Word. So should we be surprised that America is becoming all the more biblically illiterate? I don't think so, right? I don't think we should be alarmed. Our society is becoming, it's, it's all the more a post-Christian society, It's pluralistic in terms of what households and individuals identify themselves as. They're, they're, you know, it's not, it's, it's no longer, I don't know if it ever was, a Christian nation. And we need to, as Christians, understand this. Why? Because we need to speak to people, to a certain degree, where they're at. We need to understand the presuppositions that they have, the presuppositions that we might have, and we need to be able to speak their language, but at the same time, of course, present them with the truth of God's word. So here we are, Jonah. And in this short four-chapter book, we encounter a story that 
so many are so seemingly familiar with. Now, what do you mean by that one? Seemingly familiar with. This is what I mean. If uh, maybe Guido's going to do it for me, but <laughs> I'm just kidding, Guido. If we were to step outside of those doors and just confront any passerby with this statement, with this statement, would you, can you please finish this statement? Jonah was swallowed up by a by a fish. Most people would say by a fish. I, actually, I think most people would say by a whale, right? And a lot would say by a fish. If any of you were to go outside even today, this afternoon, and ask anyone, can you please finish this statement? I'll give you a dollar if you do. Jonah was swallowed up by a, eight or nine out of ten will say fish or whale. Everyone seems to know what Jonah is all about, right? It's about a man being swallowed up by a fish or a whale. Well, that's true. But that's not the whole truth. You see, Jonah is certainly about a man named Jonah, who was, in fact, swallowed by a fish. He was a prophet of God, who ran away from the God he serves, who ran away from the God, from the God uh, on whom he speaks, uh, who, who, who he speaks on behalf of. So yes, this book certainly is about Jonah, but he's not the lead actor. He's not the lead actor in this drama. It's about a big fish, right? Perhaps a whale, we don't know. The species, the text doesn't indicate the species of fish. Uh, a whale is not a fish, it's a mammal, okay? But anyhow, we know that, what, what do we know? We know that this particular fish had, you know, a weaker, uh, less, I guess, acidic digestive juices, right? Or something like that, because Jonah was able to survive, uh, remain, three, three, uh, remain alive for three days in this fish's belly, and I'm sure a lot of our kids would, would love this character in the story, right? The, the fish, okay? Um, but you know what? It's, it's not about just a fish. I mean, you, I, I think we can consider the fish to be kind of like the mascot of this story. What, what do you mean by that? Well, God uses this mascot, this tool, to stir drama. He uses the fish to stir drama and to make it, wow, uh, just a, a riveting story. A man is swallowed by a fish. And that's what mascots do, if you didn't notice. They run around, right, on the court side, on the field, and they, ins- they stir up drama, right? They, they get the fans, the fanatics, to go crazy and to scream and to shout for their team and to do some crazy things, taking off their clothes and, you know, putting big RUs or, you know, USCs or whatever, you know? But it's not only about a big fish. It's about the Ninevites, right? Those horrible pagan sinners, right? The enemies of God that we read about who were from this great city, which was actually the capital of Assyria, where there, where there occurs eventually a mass revival to the extent that even the king of Nineveh would repent and decree that all the people, every, all the inhabitants, should turn from their wicked and evil ways. This story is certainly about the Ninevites. Ninevites who are deserving of not grace, amazing grace, but deserving of God's punishment and wrath. But it's not only about the Ninevites. This book, believe it or not, is primarily about God. It is about God the Father, God the Son, Jesus and God the Holy Spirit. 
This narrative, this book is about God. I mentioned it a few weeks back, but God is the hero. He's the superhero. He's the protagonist in this book, this story, this narrative, and all that we find here in his word. This book is about God. And I know some of you might be thinking, all right, I see your point about God, but where is Jesus mentioned? Where does Jesus come into the picture in this story? I'll get into the specifics of that later, but I want, you, I want to draw us all right here at the, at the outset to a passage in Luke 24. Let's all open to Luke chapter 24. Now, all of Scripture testifies to Jesus being the main idea, the main character of this story. I, I think some of you perhaps have heard, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Well, what's concealed in the old? Jesus. God's plan of salvation and redemption, restoration through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he certainly is revealed in the New Testament. Luke 24, verses 44 through 48. This is just an amazing passage that supports everything that i just spoken of to this point. It says this. This is post-resurrection. Jesus Christ says, Then he said to them, He's appearing to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They said, oh, Eureka, we've got it. It's about Jesus. And said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus Christ himself says the law, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, they're all about me. You know, Let's say this passage, and he says it earlier as well in verses 13 through 27 when he meets with two people. One person was Cleopas and the other person is an unnamed follower. He says basically the same thing. Even if Jesus' words were not part of scripture, okay? I'm just hypothetically. All the testimony of Peter and Paul and John and Luke, I mean, so on and so forth, they point to Jesus being the main character the thesis of this Bible. You see, the entirety of Holy Scriptures points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Jonah is a major character, but it is God who gives this book the only foundational idea to stand upon. And it's God who gives the only ultimate purpose for this word being written. So today, in week number one, message number one, we're going, to get into, we're going to get acquainted with this book by means of some background, and also as we touch upon three points, and those three points are the sermon title, Jonah, Judgment, and Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, your word is life, your word is truth, and we know that Jesus Christ is the word incarnate, that he's the living word. So, Father, I pray that our hearts will be captured. I pray that every thought would be taken captive, Lord. I pray that our worship to you, 
I pray that our time together would be glorifying to you. I pray, Father, and ask that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our minds so that we could not only hear, but so that we can eat of your word, so that we can apply your word to our lives. So, Lord, we pray that you would do a very unusual thing here this morning in our hearts and in our lives. And, Father, I pray that not one person, Lord, if it's in your will, would go from this place unchanged, challenged, convicted, spurred on to faithfulness, whatever it might be. Thank you, God. I am undeserving, undeserving, absolutely undeserving to, to be your mouthpiece, but thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jonah is an Old Testament prophetic book, and this book is categorized, he is categorized as one of the minor prophets. Now, what does that mean? He's not minor because he's any less significant or any less important, but simply because it's only four chapters long. It's not 66 chapters long like Isaiah or 51 chapters long like Jeremiah. It's, it's a minor prophetic book. Interestingly, what makes this prophetic book stand out that it's written The fact that it's written in a narrative, a story form. Moreover, it's the only prophetic book where there is no pronouncement from God to his people. There's no prophetic announcement to God's covenant people, Israel. In fact, the only pronouncement made in this book is in the Hebrew, a five-word pronouncement made in chapter, uh, chapter four, chapter three, I'm sorry. So you're probably now thinking, okay, well, it's a minor prophetic book and it's four chapters long. Why are we spending so much time in this book? Well, as I shared just a little while ago, God's word is so much like a transformer, right? There's so much more than meets the eye. Sorry, I had to say that. Through this narrative, God provides a word for us here today. He does. And what he does is, unlike the other prophetic books where he uses prophets to declare impending judgment and doom for unrepentant hearts and lives and idolatry and unfaithfulness to him, through this brief narrative, through Jonah's disobedience, through his rebellion, you know what he does? He holds up to our hearts some mirrors. He holds up to our hearts some mirrors. And with these mirrors... What he does is he reveals to us our weaknesses. He exposes to us our frailties and our fears and our false hopes. And especially what he does is he helps us see our imperfect, our fickle, our conditional, our uncompassionate love. So he holds these mirrors before us and he says, look, this is who you are. Don't deny it. You try to deny it, but look. Look at the mirror that that you see in Jonah. Look at the mirror that you see in, in my holy judgment. Look at the mirror that you see in Jesus, and you're going to see a lot of commonalities, especially with Jonah. You're going to see things that God will hopefully refrain from meeting or administering upon us in the judgment. And you're going to see a perfect reflection that he sees when he sees us. He sees Jesus. 
He confronts us with these mirrors. And when we're confronted with these mirrors, we're called to examine ourselves. We're called to examine our hearts. And God doesn't do this to expose us and to put us to shame. He doesn't do it to to, to scorn or ridicule us. He doesn't do it to leave us hopeless and helpless because left to our own devices, in fact, we are utterly hopeless and utterly helpless. But he does this to remind us of who he is ultimately. He does this to remind us of his divine and majestic sovereignty. He does this to remind us to take to heart his steadfast love, not our uncompassionate fickle love, but his steadfast love and his compassion upon sinners like us who didn't deserve mercy but deserved wrath. You see, the cool thing about God is that he has, this, he has this knack in that whenever he does expose us, and let's be honest with ourselves, does, do, do you like to be exposed? I, I certainly don't. I mean, there's, there's a reason why I put a, a towel around me when I come out of the shower, because I don't like to be exposed. I like to cover myself. Well, all the more when I think and, and know of my sin, I don't want my sin to be exposed. But he doesn't expose us to, again, shame us. He exposes us to reveal more of himself as well. And what he does is that he hopes and he, and he, he longs for, as he exposes us and our weaknesses and our frailties, he exposes himself and he hopes that we can be aligned with him. That's what he does. So let's look at our first mirror in today's message. The, 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 our first mirror starts with Jonah, the example, the person of Jonah. All right, Jonah, just a uh, interesting tidbit of information. His, his name in Hebrew means dove. Jonah was a prophet. He was a seer of God. And he was a servant who was set apart, right? Who was made holy by God for a unique purpose. He was a man who had the gift to see into the purposes of God. He was a man who was divinely commissioned to, to bring God's people under the authority of God's word. And according to biblical history, his immediate predecessors were men like great prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And we can't be certain about this, but we can perhaps, um, the Bible perhaps implies that maybe he was exposed to their ministries and he, he may have been trained and served under these great prophets. So he's a man who has a gift, who has a calling, and who has been trained by godly men. And believe it or not, Jonah although we're not too familiar with this, Jonah actually had another prophetic message that he gave earlier to the people of Israel. In 2 Kings 14, Jonah gives a message, a prophecy to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. At this point, the kingdoms have been divided. North is the kingdom of Israel. South is the kingdom of Judah. He gives a prophecy to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is under Syrian rule. They've been extremely rebellious. They've been essentially... um, prostituting themselves over to other gods. So he gives a really great prophecy, a very promising prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he basically says, you are going to escape the reign and rule of the Syrians, and you're going to experience wealth and power and prosperity. It was a promise, a a prophecy of promise that God would bring about military victories and prosperity. It's in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27. You can read that on your own. 
This prophecy was fulfilled during a king whose name was Jeroboam II. But as was often the case, after they experienced wealth and prosperity and, you know, uh, liberation from the Syrian oppressors, they go right back. I mean, they're thankful for a little while, but they go right back into their idolatry, into their unfaithfulness. There might have been other prophecies given by Jonah, but we do not know because scripture is silent on this matter. But what we do know is that in that instance of prophecy to Israel, Jonah was faithful. Jonah was faithful in the past to deliver God's messages to his people. But here in Jonah, we have a prophetic word of a remarkably different persuasion. Here in Jonah, we have a prophecy of impending judgment, a prophecy of exposing that exposes evil, that exposes sin, that exposes unrighteousness. And not only that, this prophecy was not to be given to his own people, to his kinsmen. This prophecy was to be given to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were people who were violent, oppressive, enemies of Israel. Believe it or not, the Assyrians actually helped the northern kingdom escape from their captivity under the Syrians. But nevertheless, they were, it's kind of like, you know, you've got two enemies and you, you want to, in military, try to pit your two enemies against themselves somehow or other and, and, and relinquish, you know, kind of free yourselves from one enemy, but you still have the other, other enemy left. Well, that was the case with the Assyrians. They were a ruthless people. They were warlike. They were barbaric and eventually, Assyria would be the, would be the country, that the empire, that would sack the northern kingdom in 722 BC. But in God's wisdom, he had a word for Jonah to give to the Ninevites. He says in verse 1 and 2, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Can you, can you understand what this meant? Can you fathom the message that Jonah had to give to people who would perhaps kill him on the spot? It, it's kind of like this. Leon, I'm glad you're here. Leon plays ball. He's starting football for the Leonia slash Palisades Park football team. And uh, we were practicing softball a few weeks back and the Richfield football team was practicing and Leon was like looking at them, you know, real hard. And, you know, you know, and I was like, oh, Leon, come on. He's like, he's like, you know, you know, just a lot of harshness, you know, it's football. Okay. Come on. A lot of testosterone. So imagine if Leon as a football player for the Leonia Pal Park team has to what? He has to give his playbook to Richfield's team. Well, you guys are playing Cresco, but we'll say Richfield. Richfield's team in order to, to help this team gain a victory over his own team. Wow. Would that be a hard thing for you to do, Leon? Yeah, he wouldn't do it, okay? All right. So the mirror before Leon of Jonah, I mean, it, it reflects the same the same response. Even worse, imagine this. Imagine a Jewish Holocaust victim 
who has somehow, he's, he's still in captivity in a camp. He's somehow been informed of an allied secret invasion. And for whatever reason, he's been instructed to warn his Nazi captors of the Allies' impending attack and danger. That's what Jonah was being called to do. That is what he's being called to do. For Jonah, it was nearly a matter of life and death. So what is Jonah's response? We see in verse 3, but Jonah, but Jonah. As, as, as you grow in your walk with the Lord, I think more and more you'll realize that you never want to butt against God. <laughs> you never want to butt anything against God. But that's exactly what Jonah does here. He's called to go a few hundred, couple hundred, few hundred miles to, to Nineveh. And what does he do? He goes a few thousand miles away in the opposite direction to Tarshish which is present-day Spain. Why, why does he go in that direction to that length to run away from God? Because this shows us the disobedience in, God's, in Jonah's heart. His desire is to be as far away from God as humanly possible. And his actions reveal this desire. Now, the crazy thing is that of all people, Jonah was a prophet and he knew what the psalmists had written. He knew of Psalm 139 where, where the psalmist cries out, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He should have known this, and he did in his heart of hearts. I know he knew this. And instead of being comforted by this, instead of finding strength in this, he dreaded being near to God, near to God, and he fled. The word of God says in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee, and it tells what he did. And it's, it's kind of cool the way the scriptures kind of bookmark or, or, or bookend this 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 fleeing of jonah it says jonah rose to flee from the presence of the lord he tells what he's did what he did and then at the end of verse three it says away from the presence of the lord so as we hold up as god holds up this mirror of jonah before us do we see our responses and reactions as not being in line with Jonah's? Am I being a little far-fetched in saying that we perhaps go to the opposite direction thousands of you know, figurative miles away as we try to flee from God whose hand should lead us and whose hand holds us? I don't think so. I do not think so. I truly believe that even in our knee-jerk reactions to such hard callings upon our lives, our responses are very much in line with Jonah's response. We may not be booking any cruises to Spain or flights to California, but we do often flee God in the decisions that we make in our lives. Decisions that oppose his call upon our lives. Decisions that oppose his 
will for our lives. And I'm going to illustrate this by quickly sharing with you an illustration that relates to my messages on membership the past two weeks. It's so appropriate. You know, for the past two weeks, I've been speaking on Maranatha membership, why membership to the local church is, is important, that Jesus Christ died for, the, for his bride, the church, that he obtained his church with his own blood, it tells us in Acts chapter 20, I believe it is, or 17. And I expressed hopefully clearly how it's biblical and how joining and committing and loving either this local church or another local church is so crucial for manifesting God's glory and for our good and our joy and for, and for the, fulfilling the mission of our church. The mission, the great commission. It's so important that we are part of a local church. Well, a couple weeks back, I spoke with um, uh, this guy who, um, I don't want to make it, it won't be obvious, but I was speaking to this guy, and um, I believe this person is a telltale example of someone who's fleeing from the presence of the Lord in this area of local church membership and commitment. So I'm sitting with him, and we have this discussion about, about you know, committing himself to the local church. And essentially, just to give you background, this person has been going to not only one church, not only two church churches, but three churches, right? If he goes home on the weekends, right, where he grew up, then he goes to such and such church. If his friends call him that particular week and tell him of something that's going on at this church, he goes to that church. And on occasion, he'll come to the third church. He'll attend the third church. And so I asked him, I kind of, you know, prayerfully challenged him. I said, hey, you know, don't you think that you're not only are you missing out on something, it, it, you know, by being just kind of stretching yourself in three different ways, but don't you think that, that you also are not able to, like, give of yourself and serve the body by committing to one church? And you know what? This is what he said. He said, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. He said, as a matter of fact, this church, let's call it Church B, this church is the church that I know I should be at. The the people at this church love God's word. The preacher at this church preaches God's word and holds God's word in high regard. When I go to that church, there's genuine, humble community being lived out amongst the people of God. When I go to that church, they're always talking about the mission, the mission, that yes, we're a community, but we're a community on mission. And then I said, well, well, why don't you just go, go, commit yourself to that one church. Don't spread yourself out like this. You know what this person said to me? And this kind of, I was just like, whoa. He said, Juan, I know God wants me at that church. I know that's where I belong and that's where I need to be. I'm not making this up. This is almost verbatim. But he finished his statement with these words. But I know what will be expected of me should I join that church. And therefore, I can't join that church. Jonah knows what's expected of him. He's very clear in understanding his call to go to the Ninevites. And he goes in the opposite direction. This brother I had this conversation with, and I'm still praying for him. He tells me, I know God wants me there. I know this is God's will for me. But I also know the expectations. 
he's not reminding himself that God is going to uphold him and strengthen him and care for him. He's just thinking of what he needs to do or what he needs to live up to and expectations. And I just said, that's not what church is about. That's not what the gospel's about. But here in point number one, the mirror of Jonah, this mirror of Jonah is, is being used by God, yes, to bring prophetic warning. But it's a warning that God gives in order to express his compassion, in order to express his grace. It's an act of compassion towards these, at least in the eyes of Jonah, these repulsive, barbaric Ninevites who did not know their right hand from their left. You see, people of God, and for those of you who are visitors, God's warnings, his chiding, his reproof, his correction doesn't come to us for the purpose of destroying us. It comes to us with a purpose with a view towards repentance, with a view towards restoration and forgiveness, towards undeserving sinners. That's what God is calling Jonah to do. Bring this prophetic message to my enemy, not to Israel, but in fact Israel was at one time my enemy, and you also were my enemy. Bring this message to to these people because they need to hear this message of compassion and mercy. And you know what? We find out later, and I'll touch upon it when I get there, but Jonah's greatest fear wasn't that he was afraid of death or torture or captivity. And this is where the mirror of Jonah's life and example should shine upon our hearts to see if where we are uncompassionate in our love for those who do not know the hope and joy of Jesus Christ. Jonah's greatest fear was that the Ninevites would in fact turn to God. His greatest fear and repulsion was that the Ninevites would, would turn, repent of their ways, and go to God in faith and in trust. Now I know that we don't posture our hearts in that way so outright, so explicitly. But I believe that when we fear man more than we fear God, I believe that when we, as we're out on the streets of Greater Fort Lee and we see people who need to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of hope, the gospel of love, the gospel of amazing grace, and we turn away when there's opportunities given to us by God. I don't think it's far-fetched to say we are no different from Jonah. No different from Jonah. Jonah knew all too well the character of God. He was a prophet of God. He, of all people, knew that God's character was this. He's a long-suffering God. On my way here, this lady's going 20 miles per hour. I'm like pulling my hair, the hair that I have left on my head. Trying, to, I'm just pulling my hair out. Pick it up. It's 25 miles per hour. God is a long-suffering God who deals mercifully with a stick-necked, undeserving person in Jonah and undeserving people in the Israelites 
and undeserving people in the Ninevites. He knew all too well that God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And despite his past faithfulness, his pedigree under Elijah and Elisha, the privilege that he had of of being a prophet of God, he sinfully rebels and defiantly goes the other way. Our second mirror for today is the mirror of judgment. More specifically, it's the mirror of God's sovereign judgment. Sovereign. God is all-powerful. Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord, right? As we read in in verse 3. And soon enough, we see God's judgment falling upon him in verses 4 through 15. We, you know, Suji read it before. I'm not going to read it now. I'll, I'll touch upon some of the points in the passages. But I want you to notice this as we start this second point. Please take, make note of the fact that despite his messenger, Jonah, rejecting or at least trying to reject God's will, God does not abandon his plans. God does not abandon his sovereign purposes and his plans. In fact, and this is just the thing that blows my mind away and makes me really more than just scratch my head thinking, wow, God, you are just so incredibly wise. He even uses Jonah's disobedience, his defiance, to bring about his purposes and Plans. So we read in from verses 4 through 15. He, what does he do? Jonah goes the other way, right? And God hurls a great wind upon the sea, right? The, the ship is, is going to break up. The mariners are, you know, literally peeing in their pants and they're crying out to their gods. And so they start taking their desperate measures, throwing out cargo. Um, and, and what does Jonah do? He just goes downstairs and he pulls a wand. My, di- my wife Diane says I have the gift of sleep because I can close my eyes and in three seconds I'll be snoring away, okay? Um, I, have, um, I have sleep apnea, so that's why I'm, it's, it's a good gift that I have, okay? So he, he goes down and he just falls fast asleep. The storm is raging. The, it, it's, it, it's incredibly tempestuous. The captain confronts Jonah in verse 6. They decide to to cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. He shouldn't be surprised, right? Because every lot that is cast is decided by the Lord, it says in Proverbs. So at this point, they ask him all these questions. And Jonah, right? You know, who are you? Where are you from? What people? What tribe are you from? Jonah has the gall to proclaim in verse 9, right? If you read verse 9, it says, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I don't know if you see the irony here, but I'll point it out if you don't. God calls Jonah to bring his word to his enemies, pagans, heathens, right? Unbelieving people. He flees. But what is Jonah doing here? Jonah is bringing God's word to pagans, not the Ninevites, but these mariners. God is using Jonah not only to bring his word to the Ninevites, but also to these mariners. This is God's sovereignty in display. 
This is God's sovereignty in display. God uses circumstances. God uses situations. God even uses certain situations and circumstances where sin abounds and evil seems to just be all over the place and he uses these situations and circumstances to accomplish his sovereign will, his sovereign purposes. The, the, the most excellent example, one of many, is found in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, right? The son, the, the, the favored son of Jacob who was sold off into slavery by his, his brothers, right? And who finds, you know, the favor of God, undeserved favor through, through um, you know, um, Pharaoh and, and then through, um, you know, bec- becoming basically the second in command. He basically, you know, has this, uh, this, 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 the story goes so that his peop- the, 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 you know, the, his brothers come to Egypt because there's a famine in, in the land. Um, and, and Egypt was the only one because of Joseph. It was the only nation, the only empire that was smart enough to, to invest and to save and to store for seven years, right? They go for food and Joseph sees his brothers. And at the end of the story, when Jacob has died, the brothers are trembling in their boots because they're thinking, what is our brother going to do to us now, now that our father is dead? And in Genesis 50, 16 through 21, it says this. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God uses suffering and evil that does confound us, that does hurt us, but he uses it for his good. This past September 1st was was the eighth um, birthday of my, um, our second daughter, Naomi. And uh, for those of you who don't know my testimony, um, we have four kids, three here with us, one we believe to be with the Lord. And uh, the Lord um, you know, took our Naomi when she was nine months old. And it was, uh, it was a crazy, but um, a crazy and yet wonderful time of experiencing God's grace. And uh, Diane and I, we took the kids out to George Washington Memorial Cemetery right here in Paramus. And... Um, and it's something that we do twice a year on the day of her, her death, um, June 5th, we go out. And also on her birthday, we go out and um, we take our kids with us and we make it a really uh, a wonderful time of remembering, a wonderful time of sharing, you know, funny stories and, uh, and memories. And um, afterwards, we, we got into the car and um, we just had a, a time of devotion where I read Revelation 21.4, um, Revelation 21.4. 
four, one through four, but first four is, is on the, the gravestone. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be mourning, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I'm just, I was just reminded of how God used her painful passing sovereignly and lovingly to bring me to a deeper understanding of his sovereignty, of his sovereign grace. I was reminded of how he opened my spiritual eyes to the doctrines of grace. He reminded me of how he brought about the salvations of two people from our former church. If you're going to play softball with us, you'll meet one of the guys, Brian Lee. He was in my men's group. He came to know Jesus through our local church loving us and, and supporting us and, and giving us hope that we needed. Praise be to God that although we may be able to flee from him as Jonah did, we can never thwart his purposes. Praise be to God that we can never frustrate his sovereign orchestrations. So getting back to the text, the captain of the ship confronts Jonah, right? And it's kind of neat, but he uses the same language God uses, right? He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. More irony, a pagan is demanding Jonah to call upon his God. And what do we see in verses 11 through 16? I'm going to read it. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. These men went from being pagans who were just afraid of a storm, intensely fearful for their lives, to a fear that matured and resulted in worship. Reverent worship. God used a disobedient, defiant, sinful man who fled to speak his word, to speak the truth of him being the creator God to these mariners. So where's the sovereign judgment? We see sovereign judgment in this. The Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This is not ultimate judgment, but it is a judgment that Jonah faces for his defiance, and his disobedience. You know what? We face this type of judgment, even as Christians, in our lives constantly. We do. When God reveals to us our sin, when we experience the consequences of sin, we're experiencing the judgment of God. And don't get me wrong, when we sin, we're forgiven. 
past, present, future, but consequences remain and last and have a way of just kind of going like that. But for Jonah, despite this judgment, ultimately, he experienced mercy. And verse 17 foreshadows the mercy that we will discover that Rob, I'm sure, will touch upon in great detail in chapter 2. The second judgment is this. The Lord pronounces sovereign judgment over the mariners of the sea headed towards Tarshish. Okay? Now, in a sense, the judgment that should be administered upon them, that should befall them, is administered to Jonah, right? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, they're all, before the eyes of God, they're all sinful. They're all fallen. They're, they're, they, all, they haven't repented and put their trust in Christ. So they all deserve the same fate that Jonah receives, being thrown overboard, right? But in this case, because it was Jonah, because it was his defiance that led to the storm, that led to the, the, the ship almost breaking apart, he took the fall overboard to save their, their lives. It was, it was Jonah's wrong that brought them to this place. But it goes beyond this. The sovereign judgment of God over the mariners goes beyond just this temporary physical life-saving Judgment administered upon Jonah. And this is where we encounter mirror number three in the person and the work of Jesus. You see, in the New Testament, there is another episode of another man who calms the raging, stormy seas. We find that in parallel accounts in Mark, Luke, but the the account in Matthew chapter 8 tells us of how Jesus' disciples woke him up and cried out to him in desperation, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus rebukes the wind. He calms the storm. He, he, he calms the sea, and, and they're saved. Now, this is where it gets a little mysterious and amazing, but it's all about God's sovereign grace. You see, somehow or other, the sailors even in that short pronouncement made by Jonah, they're able to get it. They're able to understand and grasp that Jonah's God, Yahweh, is the only true and living God. And this is purely by the mercies of God. Purely by the mercies of God. His sovereign grace allowed for their salvation to be dependent on Jesus. Now, now you're thinking, you really have thrown me for a loop because I don't see Jesus' name mentioned anywhere. I don't see Jesus being talked of. But nevertheless, their salvation is dependent fully upon the future accomplished work of Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. These sailors were spared the ultimate judgment of condemnation. These sailors were spared the ultimate judgment of God's holy and righteous wrath being poured upon them. They were spared an eternity in the pit of hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Why? How? 
Not because Jonah paid it with his life being thrown overboard, but because Jesus would pay it all on their behalf. You see, Jonah was simply a shadow of Jesus. Jonah was a precursor of the true Savior to come. He was a type, and there were many, many types in the Old Testament. He was a shadow and a type. But Jonah, although he was thrown overboard, and although he took that fall to save their physical lives, Jonah was a guilty man. Jonah received the death sentence he really deserved. He didn't receive that death sentence because he would come out from the watery grave. But Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the only innocent man to ever live, Jesus went to the grave. Jesus received a death sentence he did not deserve. And in his death and resurrection, he attained for us salvation, freedom from our sins, salvation for these mariners. Jesus, Jonah, delivered from death, right? In the belly of this fish, three days and three nights. Jesus conquers death after three days and nights in the tomb. He rises victorious over the grave, over sin, over death and condemnation. It's all about Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus. Listen to this. I'll close with this and some passages. This is from Dr. Timothy Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church. This is what he says. This is beautiful. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the new, the true and new better Moses who stands in the gap between the people of the, and the, between the, people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rod of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, and now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm, 
so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses. He's the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain. So the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for reminding us today through this passage in Jonah 1, Lord, that you are using your word to reflect mirrors before our faces in our lives. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be humble and teachable and brought to conviction about how quickly, how readily, We flee from your presence. But Father, as you've reminded us, Lord, you do not leave us in such a place. But Lord, you've reminded us today of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, you've reminded us that for, as we sang before, for our sake you made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we thank you for reminding us that Jesus Christ committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled and he did not revile in return. He, was, he suffered and he did not threaten. Father, we thank you that you remind us that he bore our sins in his body, on that tree, on that cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Thank you for reminding us by his wounds we have been healed. Thank you for reminding us that Christ endured once and for all, despising all the shame, the cross. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us, Lord, that he did not grasp equality, Lord, with you, but instead, Father, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Father, thank you, Lord, that Rob reminded us earlier that you've told us to come, come to me, all who are labor, who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we thank you, though, that you pursue us, that even when we flee from you, you pursue us. Lord, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, in the example that you've given us, the tangible example you've given us in our brother Morris, Lord, who thought that he needed to tidy himself up and be at a place where he could be presentable before you. But Lord, thank you for reminding him and opening up his heart and teaching him that it's all about you making him through Jesus Christ worthy and righteous. Thank you for that. Father, at this time, as we go into our time of communion, Father, may our hearts be humbled. Lord, may we take this time as Pastor Rob explains to us what this is all about. To have your mirror reflect and expose so that our hearts can be aligned to your heart even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners, 
or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.